1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Nick Jaczynski, a senior reporter at Barron's. Joining us today is Jack Ablin, Chief Investment Officer of Crescent Capital, which is an investment advisory firm and multifamily office with more than $35 billion in assets under management. Their investments span equities, fixed income and private assets. So we'll have lots to discuss today. Jack is coming to us today from their uh, Palm Beach, Florida office. Um, thank you, everyone, for joining us and, and welcome, Jack. It's good to have you on Barron's Live.
0: Oh, thanks, Nick. Thanks for the invitation.
1: So, um, Jack, let's let's start with your, your big picture market views. Um, I believe at the start of the year, you and your team projected that the S&P 500 would be up around 7% for the year. The 10-year treasury would decline a little bit this year. Um, sitting here today, July 11th, we appear to be a bit over our skis. Bond yields are up. The S&P 500 is added around 15% year to date. Um, at the same time, there's been a lot of angst and, and much has been made about the, the narrow breadth of this rally. It's been climbing this wall of worry driven by mostly a handful of mega cap tech stocks, the AI theme. Um, so big picture question to start. What, uh, what happens next?
0: Sure. Um, it, it is a great question. Um, you know, we started the year uh, at uh, you know, a lower rate, interest rate and a slightly more modest earnings growth. Uh, projection. Uh, Since that time, uh, we've got, uh, you know, Q4 2023 earnings expected to be up about 5.3% for the year. Um, And the 10-year treasury went from, you know, 3.8 to over four. Um, You know, generally when you own the S&P, you only own two things and that's earnings, dividends, and uh, the multiple. Uh, And the good news is uh, the earnings growth would suggest uh, a roughly a, you know seven uh, uh, percent or so uh, increase in in the uh, in the uh, total return, and uh, with the higher higher interest rates would suggest a slightly lower multiple that hasn't happened, uh, and so now we expect uh, at least the, the total market the cap weighted S and P to be d- down you know five six seven percent uh, between now and the end of the year.
1: Um, and so, I mean, one one way things go is the the, the nifty seven or eight or so fall back and join the S&P 493 or whatever you want to call it, or it could go the other way where the where the, the average stock catches up to some of those mega cap leaders so far. Um, do you see the average stock in the index doing better than that five, six, 7% pullback in the second half of the year?
0: Yeah, I do. Um, so um, there are really two periods that I can think of where the cap weighted index really ran pretty far ahead of the average. And that was, uh, uh, 2020, uh, during, uh, the lockdown pandemic, uh, and also, uh, in 2000 in the tech bubble, um, in both cases, uh, the average stock did, uh, catch up in the case of 2020, they were both up, uh, that, uh, the S&P overall was up for the, uh, you know, from from uh, roughly March of 2020 through the end of the year, uh, and the average stock did much better. Uh, in the case of 2020, and you look out over the next year, the average stock was up about 8%, and the S and the cap-weighted index was down uh, around 16%. Um, so, uh, in, in both cases, the average stock did gain ground.
1: So that's interesting. It's actually a um, um, history suggests that that the, there's some mean reversion in, in store there. Um, there is no uh, there
0: is uh, the um, you know the, the the logical conclusion is you know go go buy the um, uh, the uh, equal weight S and P um, which isn't a, a bad way to play it. Um, that ETF RSP I think carries a uh, eighty or ninety basis point uh, management fee. So it's a little expensive uh, for something that perhaps you could do uh, either uh, move into mid cap or uh, select an active manager in large caps that that maybe goes a little more down market.
1: So so you mentioned mid cap, um, down down market cap. What's your view on on mid caps and and small caps as well? Should those do better than the, the large cap index?
0: We, we think they will. I think we need to see, uh, you know, kind of the light at the end of the business cycle. We do expect um, we will likely have a modest recession uh, later this year or early next, um, largely due to the fact that, you know, many of the, the Fed policymakers believe that the rates need to go higher. Uh, we think that the economy is slowing pretty well on its own. Um, we've got, you um, uh, final demand and PPI at 1.8 percent year over year, mm-hmm. and his you know and over the last several months CPI has been following uh, that trend. Um, so I think most um, most economists are predicting a three handle in uh, on the uh, year over year inflation number uh, due out tomorrow. Uh, so I, I, I think that the, the Fed funds rate needs you know can stay where it is. That I don't think they need to do any more. Uh, we just worry that the Fed will ratchet up rates two more times uh, and that could push you know, uh, a soft landing into a you know, mild recession, perhaps a l- little more moderate recession. Uh, and, and, and to answer your question, I think once we see light at the end of that business cycle where we bottom and then start to see um, you know, growth again, that's where the mid caps really start to do well.
1: Um, and I'll just mention there, there's IJH is the a ticker that's the largest ETF that tracks the uh, S&P 400 uh, midcap index. That's from iShares. Um, so so bringing it back to the the economic outlook, um, moderate recession, modest recession, all these different M words to describe the recession. Um, what might that look like for the the consumer, the labor market?
0: Yeah. So I think there's a somewhat of a debate going on, uh, certainly in the Fed, but also in the broader uh, uh, economic, uh, investment landscape that says you don't have to kill the job market to um, quell inflation, um, and um, you know we'll see um, if if you know rates you know need to ratchet up higher. We could see eight percent mortgages. Uh, we could start to see you know bigger layoffs um, and and a real downturn. Um, and so, like I said, I I worry that the the Fed's likely going to be doing too much, largely because of the lag effect of uh, monetary policy. Um, but they believe that they've got to just kill demand in order to get you know prices back to uh, kind of their two percent target.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, timing this recession has been a challenge for every economist out there. It feels like we've been Predictions have been saying we're six months away from recession for about eighteen months now. Um, do you do you venture do you venture a guess on when when we might start to see a negative number in the GDP print or or if we even get there? I,
0: I know this was probably the most widely anticipated recession in history, so I guess that's a good thing. Um, um, so no, I, I would say um, you know I would expect you know, probably you know if we had two consecutive negative quarters, likely be Q four. Of this year q1 of next year uh, just because of the lag effect. you know if you go back and look at the um, the peak fed funds rate to the subsequent trough in inflation or the subsequent cro- trough in, in uh, uh, the economy, it, it can be anywhere between 12 months to 36 months. Um, so it's a, it's certainly a, a big lag uh, and we find that you know with that lag, And the Fed, watching current data, they tend to exaggerate in both directions on the down, you know, on easing and in tightening. And we saw certainly saw that on the easing side uh, during the pandemic. Uh, Now I I worry we're going to see it on the tightening side as well.
1: Yeah, that's a wide range. Um, It it does seem like the S and P five hundred bottomed in October last year. your prediction is is that we go down a little bit but not, not hit that bottom it seems like if we do get maybe just two quarters of a of a recession this is something that at least the the, the large cap stocks can sort of look through is a term that that i've heard a lot um, and uh, it's not going to be necessarily trading like the the average recession that we've seen historically does, does that track
0: yeah i think that it depends on on the the market um, but yeah i would say if you you take the s&p 500 and kind of a, a broad basket of, of uh, large cap, high quality stocks. I think that makes total sense. Um, one of the other studies we look at and is the total return of various markets against their collective uh, earnings and dividend uh, growth. And then we tack on uh, one year forward uh, and try to see, you know, where does the cumulative total return uh, stack up against, um, you know, next year's earnings and dividend uh, uh, cumulative growth and historically shouldn't be a surprise Nick that the total return of of market tends to track pretty closely to the growth in earnings and dividends over time Um, and that uh, and the S&P also suggests around a seven or eight percent you know uh, uh, overstep in the S&P but if you look if you take that same analysis and and we went back to 2009, roughly the same, uh, the, the, the time when the 10-year treasury, I think, was around 3.9%, so pretty close to where we are today. And we look at the cumulative growth in earnings and dividends and then tack on the next 12 months, uh, dividend expectations and earnings growth expectations, and look at it through the lens of the NASDAQ 100, remarkably, that index shows about a 30% Overvaluation, so that's that's going to wow. leave a mark. That's going to leave a yeah, mark well. if uh, if that index goes goes back to fair value. Now the bulls could argue, well, you know what, one year forward earnings and dividends isn't really far enough for these, you know, aspirational tech stocks. You you probably have to track it, uh, you know, further out. Um, but history has shown that they it does tend to track that number that 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 growth rate over time and. It seems like this gap is just uncomfortably wide right now.
1: Mm-hmm. That's incredible. Um, so so we've been focused on the U.S. stock market so far, but there's, of course, there's a whole other world out there, both, both literally and figuratively, I suppose. Um, Jack, when you set your gaze beyond our shores, what, where do you see investing opportunities abroad these days?
0: Sure. Um, so uh, one of the things we like, not just domestically, but globally, is quality. Uh, we think that in an environment where... Uh, the availability, access to capital, and liquidity is become uh, a little uh, more scarce. Uh, having a high-quality company is certainly a, a better place to be. And so uh, we like developed international in general, uh, Japan in particular, uh, as a, a market where it's trading at roughly in the 30th percentile of its historical range from a valuation perspective, uh, and the S&P is, I think, in the 60th percentile, so still above median. Um, and interestingly, the currencies, uh, particularly the yen and the euro, are relatively cheap compared to the dollar. If you look at it on a purchasing power parity basis, kind of like the modified Big Mac index, if you will. And so it, when, you, when a U.S. investor owns international stocks, they own two things. They own, uh, obviously, the earnings and dividends. Of in that market, but they also own that currency. Um, And so on an earnings and dividends basis, we think that uh, the uh, international equities are probably around 13, 14% cheap uh, to next year's earnings and dividend growth. And their currency, uh, the euro is probably nearly 20% cheap, and the yen is probably 40% cheap. So if Any of those things start to revert back to fair value, uh, you have a number of ways to win, owning uh, quality, large cap, international investments uh, as a US investor.
1: Multiple shots on goal, it sounds like. It also sounds like all our American listeners should uh, take their vacations to Europe and Japan this summer. summer.
0: What I've heard, Japan is a real park and I mean, that's been a long time coming.
1: Well, maybe I'll see you there, Jack. Um, (laughs) What about um, what about emerging markets? Much has been made of of the China recovery, uh, not really meeting expectations this year.
0: Yeah, I think China's been a disappointment in the near term. um, But um, longer term, I think China is really not positioned as well as uh, they have in the past. Uh, You know, not surprisingly, is their housing uh, bubble. Uh, that they're, that they're uh, grappling with. And if you go back uh, just by um, historical comparisons, uh, let's see, I have it right here, actually. Um, you know, when we reached our peak in our housing bubble in uh, 2006 or 2007, uh, uh, re- residential housing expenditures as a percentage of GDP got up to around, you know, six and a quarter um, percent in the U.S., well, right now uh, China's at ten, <laughs> so they're wow. uh, uh, more than fifty percent uh, higher in um, residential exposure, and of course um, those uh, those prices are starting to come down. Um, I suppose the good news is for them all all loans lead back to the con- to the government, um, so we're not going to see necessarily dominoes fall on the financial. Market, But I do think it's going to leave a pretty big impact on their economy, which they've been really um, fueling with huge debt growth uh, and continuing to print you on as uh, as they're trying to paper over a lot of these uh, problems. So I think, um, you know, putting it all together, I think the the economic growth rate that China has been able to deliver over the last 20 years is certainly going to going to dwarf anything moving forward. Their demographics aren't so great. Uh, they're very reliant on imports uh, and and trade in general. Uh, and we think that gl- the globalization you know, phenomenon uh, that really emerged starting in uh, 1980 or so uh, really peaked in f- 2012. And now that pendulum is starting to swing back in the other direction. So we think a lot of the tailwinds that China's had uh, during the 90s and 2000s are, are going to lead to headwinds. What does that mean for emerging? Well, right now, uh, China is anywhere between 25 uh, percent to 30 percent of emerging markets. Um, and so, for us, we want to um, play a much more active role in emerging. We want to hire managers that have the latitude to really, uh, you know, emphasize or avoid countries you know, if they find an if a manager finds an opportunity, uh, isolated opportunity in China, we want, certainly want to encourage them to do it. Uh, but on the other hand, if they feel that, uh, China is too big of a risk and they, they want to just emphasize other countries, we want to give them the flexibility to do that as well. Um, so we've, uh, enlisted the help of GQG, uh, to, um, to, to, uh, get us some exposure in, um, emerging but in general we're still kind of neutral on emerging just because it does require um, growth in trade which is kind of moving in the opposite direction right now
1: got it and i'll just um for our listeners GQGIX is the institutional class of that neutral fund you mentioned and gqgpx is the retail version um, also I'd just like to remind our listeners to to please submit questions for jack in the in the chat on the right side of your screen there um, we'll get to as many of those as we can at the end of the call. Um, in the meantime, um, Jack, I was hoping you could speak about some of Cresset's different um, thematic strategies in in the the stock market. I know you're not you're not totally bottom up. You think about these these bigger themes and and create these baskets for for clients around those. Can you walk us through those?
0: Sure. Um, sure. yeah, the um, what we do is we we really um, um divide our investment strategies into four buckets, if you will. Uh, all defined by time horizon. So we have a liquidity bucket, which is overnight to three years. We have what we call diversified income strategy, which is uh, three to seven years. We have a growth strategy from seven to 15 years, and then an aspirational strategy uh, from 15 years and beyond. And part of our public market allocation uh, and and strategies we've developed in our aspirational are thematic. Um, not surprisingly, uh, we have AI, uh, we, we we built these um, strategies in 2020, uh, uh, third quarter of 2020, uh, and have uh, nine strategies today. So we have AI, we've got robotics, we've got cybersecurity, uh, we've got um, genomics, personalized medicine, next generation transportation. Uh, and then we have kind of a catch all that takes all of those themes, and puts it into one strategy, we run them as separate accounts for our clients. And um, there, we, we do that uh, with no management fee, it's in, just included in the advisory fee that our clients pay. Um, but what, what I want to emphasize here is, you know, that what we're dealing with, and what we're what we're when we're talking about thematic, we're talking about productivity, essentially, we're talking about able to do accomplish things with uh, fewer uh, man hours, that you're getting more done. And that, you know, that takes time. Uh, that's not something uh, that you can snap your fingers and say, okay, I'm going to make a, a ton of money over the next 18 months. And we're, we saw that in 2000. Um, with the promise of the internet, uh, you know, between uh, 99 and 2001, the uh, internet theme, you know, declined by, uh, I think, drew down by 85%. um, But if you waited, if you invested, unfortunately, at the peak, you would have had to wait about 17 years or so uh, for those themes to play out. And so Our our approach to thematic and AI included is, it's a 15-year strategy, uh, and one where we wanna um, take a global approach, uh, but also harness the the companies that are not only uh, deriving their revenues from AI and uh, AI-related endeavors, but also gaining market share, uh, and we continually rebalance in that direction.
1: I mean, AI may, certainly may take some time to, to be reflected in the, in the real economy, but it feels like it's, it's been fully priced in and some stocks in particular in the past three, four, five, six months. Um, this, this relates to some questions we've gotten from listeners. I, I guess what, what, uh, what advice would you give to investors who might have missed the run in, say, NVIDIA stock this year and but still want to participate in that AI theme?
0: Yeah, so I think it's really just a matter of um, time horizon and patience. So I, I I think the horses are out of the barn in terms of AI and AI related for this year. I think, in fact, they're you know, owing to what we saw in the uh, Nasdaq one hundred overvaluation, it's probably a little bit overdone. I suspect we will see some kind of pullback. Um, but you know, that said. Um, you know, if you if you have patience and you're willing to wait, go ahead and buy Nvidia, but just put it away and and, and buy other uh, other stocks uh, related to that. Um, you know, I have the dubious distinction of appearing on the front page of the Wall Street Journal uh, in the early two thousands, uh, arguing that you know when Google came public, right, what was in two thousand four or five. Um, mm-hmm. It was too expensive, you know. You can make the case that that that, and it may and it was by a lot of my measures, it was expensive. But if you just put it away and forgotten about it, uh, it would have played out just because of the productivity that goes along with that innovation.
1: Well, at least you were on the cover of the Wall Street Journal. That's that's good, at least. Um, yeah, I'll mention the uh, so the Google IPO market cap was twenty three billion dollars today. It's at about one point five trillion. Um, so, uh, it might've been expensive then, but it's, it's certainly the fundamentals have kept up with it. And I guess it's just a matter of finding those, those names that'll do that. And maybe NVIDIA is one of those. Um, Jack, yeah, can, can you could you speak could. a little bit more about the, the, um, the, not the aspirational bucket, but the, the growth bucket, um, sure. which is a bit shorter time frame? and what are, what are some of the names in there?
0: Yeah. So, um, we, um, are focused certainly in large cap and S and P related. Uh, we have, uh, generally, it's going to be a a global equity focus. Uh, One of the things we're really finding interesting, though, right now, Nick, um, is REITs. Um, REITs have not been uh, real estate investment trusts have not been uh, an area uh, that we've paid much attention to. But now that we've had this run up in interest rates, and they've certainly gotten decimated uh, in 2022, along with real estate in general, um, this year, it's kind of a mixed picture with uh, shopping centers moving higher and office moving lower. Uh, the overall index is still a little bit lower, but we found that now on a price to FFO basis, which is how we you gauge um, REITs as funds from operation, um, it's in the in the second uh quartile of its uh historical range, <clears throat> so in other words it's trading between the twenty fifth percentile and the fiftieth percentile of its historical range. What we have found is if you're if you can invest in REITs in the first or second quartile, then you have pretty good investment results one year out uh and it works in a pretty much not a surprisingly but in a stair step fashion as you as you move down in uh Um, market valuation. So one of the things we're we're looking for is uh, perhaps adding REITs to the portfolio and our growth portfolio uh, over the next couple of months. We're just looking for a little more positive momentum. We'd like to see that um, REIT index trade above its 200-day moving average. That, That way, we've got a cheap market and investors recognize it's a cheap market.
1: Got it. Um, I'll just mention for our listeners, IYR is a ticker of that. That's the iShares uh, Real Estate ETF. Um, shifting over to the to the bond market, um, it's uh, it's hard to argue with a five percent yield on a two year Treasury these days. Maybe the two year is, is the problem. Um, what, what's the most attractive area of the bond market for you now, John?
0: Yeah, I you know I I'm willing to stick with the ten year. Uh, the ten year at four percent to me is is roughly our long term target. Historically, the 10 year treasury uh, tends to track nominal GDP, which obviously is real GDP plus inflation. Uh, If you break down real GDP into uh, labor force growth plus productivity, um, you get roughly half a percent from labor force growth. Uh, You get 1% from productivity. Uh, So that's one and a half. You add another two and a half percent for inflation, that gets to the 4% long term target for the 10 year. Um, while the five year, uh, rate on the two year is attractive, uh, if you look at the forward curve, um, both fed funds and, and, uh, treasury, um, you know, investors are anticipating as do we, uh, that those overnight rates and the shorter term rates will start to fall as economic activity slows, uh, back to that longer term trend. So, um, you know, I would rather hold the 10-year at, at four-something uh, than face some reinvestment risk in the two-year.
1: Mm-hmm. Lock in that 4% for, for as long as possible. Yeah. Makes sense. <laughs> um, I'd like to turn to some listener questions now. Um, it's a good question from Steve, um, who, who uh, responding to, to your comment about buying a stock and just putting it away and not even looking at it for 15 years. Um, what are some other stocks that you think might be in that Category for for investors who so have a particularly long time horizon these days.
0: Yeah, so for us, what I would rather do is you know I take the Peter Lynch approach uh, mm-hmm. to uh, to investing, and I should just a, just a quick story. Peter, when I was thirty uh, in Boston and managing uh, endowments and pensions uh, for a, a firm up there, Peter Lynch was actually a client of mine, which was crazy because mm. he was on the endowment committee of the museum of fine arts and I was managing their endowment. So here I am a 30 year old telling Peter Lynch among others, what I thought the market was going to do. I thought it was kind of crazy. He was actually very, uh, very kind. Uh, it was a very, very nice gentleman about it. Uh, but I do take a Peter, Peter Lynch approach, uh, in that just buy baskets, just buy themes, buy, um, and so for, for us, you know, I want to own quality. I want to own, um, uh, companies that, you know, can respond, you know, not, not just the, the thematic stuff that we talked about, certainly that's a great long term play, uh, but also high quality dividend growers, um, not dividend payers, dividend growers. Uh, and there, um, there's some great high quality companies out there that you can really live with for the long term. And one of the things we found is over time dividends have done a nice job of staying ahead of inflation um, you know that's not something that bonds can necessarily brag about um, and so um you know companies like McDonald's uh, like McCormick like Archer Daniels Midland like chevron Exxon um these are high quality companies but now, their, their dividend yields may only be 2, 3, 4%. Obviously, Chevron and Exxon a little bit higher, but their dividend growth is in the 5, 6, 8 sometimes 11% annualized over uh, a longer period of time. And that's certainly well ahead of the inflation rate.
1: Okay, and then for those those um more aspirational longer term, it's less about picking individual winners from each other now, but it's more about betting on a specific area like genomics that that's going to be a bigger field in 15 years, and and the, the winners will do more than than the losers in the meantime. Um, that's it. Now, so, I, and so there
0: we we I I, I th- rather than buy a hold a static group of companies today, I would definitely encourage um, uh, listeners to invest in thematic strategies uh, that will continually rebalance toward those companies that are gaining share and then reducing their exposure to those that are uh, perhaps becoming increasingly irrelevant in that space. Um, but you know, just like Peter Lynch said, own it all, find a theme that you like and just own them all.
1: Makes sense. Um, Lee asks, um, he's wondering about your, your client's biggest worries these days. And, and, and is that something that's different these days or over the course of your career, is it generally the same sort of things that people are worried about?
0: I think it's generally the same thing. Now it may be because of the, you know, most recent, uh, debt ceiling, uh, debates, but I would say, uh, clients worry about, uh, the, you know, our indebted, our country's indebtedness, uh, our ability to um, you know meet our budget obligations. And you know one of the things we recognized was even in this the debt ceiling uh, negotiation, first of all they never really negotiated the debt. They were just negotiating a mm-hmm. fraction of a fraction of the budget that what we find is if you take defense out of it and call that kind of a given. That Congress only controls about fifteen percent of the budget. Uh, that's all that's really discretionary. Eighty-five percent of our federal government spending is pretty well spoken for, uh, and that's a challenge. And we just have to somehow come up with a, you know, a longer-term, a more stable solution than just borrowing and spending. And I, by the way, the deficit. At, you know, so obviously we're you know thirty-one. What was it? Thirty-one point four trillion of uh, of debt. Uh, t- roughly, if you add up all of our previous presidents' deficits, and by the way, equal opportunity—Democrats de- and Republicans equally contributed—that's about twenty-one trillion. What's that ten trillion-dollar difference? That's interest.
1: Hmm. Yeah, the interest burden is something that that really, especially now with rates being higher, how, how they are, it's a uh it's just, it's just growing and growing and eating up a larger share of GDP, and that's certainly not productive. Right, a, yeah, um, That's it. So, Jack, we're running out of time here. I, I wanted to, to ask you, so I'm, I'm sure you'd recommend to our listeners to read uh, One Up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch. We just talked about that. Is there anything else that you're reading these days or that you've read over the years that, that has uh, shaped the way that you view investing? or or, uh, yeah, I,
0: yeah, there's, um, you know, there's a, uh, and I don't know if I have a copy of it in my office, but I can't remember the title, but the, uh, oh, here it is. Um, there is a book called the aspirational investor. It's not necessarily about investing. It's about structuring your investments. Uh, and it really has influenced how we at Crescent, uh, manage portfolios. So it's called the aspirational investor. By Ashvin Chabra, C H H A B R A, and what it does is, you know, and and this is what we do is, we we look at our clients' cash flow needs. Tell me what you need to define your lifestyle. And some of our clients are putting money into their portfolios. Some of their, our clients are taking money out. But our job is to really match up their investments against those cash flows, so that uh, in an environment that we have turbulence and we have all the uncertainty that, that those cash flows end up in their checking accounts on those dates that that we've kind of agreed to. So I would re- encourage your listeners to, to start with that book, because it really did inspire me to build the the strategy that we uh, constructed today at Crescent.
1: Thank you, Jack. I see it's on Amazon for $21. So hopefully you can earn a decent return on investment for, for uh, reading that. And of course, please read Barron's. Um, thank you, Jack. Um, appreciate you being here. Thank you to our listeners for, for tuning in. Um, please join us again tomorrow. We'll have a Market Watch columnist Brett Ahrens speaking with Liberum Capital's Joachim Clement, and they'll discuss investment opportunities arising from the energy transition and efforts against climate change. Thank you, Jack. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and all have a great day.
0: The energy transition is a long and winding road and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.